break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 8th of February, 2022. Happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always have. We're going to be talking about the ongoing struggle against the monarchy in Swaziland. We're also going to be talking about Wall Street, rotten to the core. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with Argentina moving closer to China and Russia. Argentine President Alberto Fernandez traveled to Beijing for the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games and on his way there, stopped off in Moscow. In both countries, he stressed the need for closer economic cooperation with Argentina and those countries. And in China, he signed $23.7 billion worth of economic cooperation agreements. Fernandez also placed his actions in a position of explicit critique of the U.S.-led international financial order that operates through the agency of the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. Argentina has been one of the world's biggest victims of the IMF and the broader Western attempts to ensnare the nations of the global South in debt traps. And Fernandez's statements and actions are a clear signal of the global shifts taking place as the U.S.-led, quote, rules-based international order phrase around the edges. The president just prior to Fernandez in Argentina, President Macri, signed a deal with the IMF during his term for $57.1 billion. That was in 2018. And it was supposed to provide crucial funds to boost the economy. Macri, who comes from the more conservative sections of the political realm in Argentina, was a true believer in the neoliberal economics that come along with these IMF loans, which require countries to make a range of austerity-based changes to their economy to be more quote-unquote pro-business, which is supposed to unleash financial growth. However, it rarely works out that way. And in fact, in a report on the loan, the IMF itself stated that, quote, the strategy and conditions of the program were not enough to correct Argentina's structural problems, end quote. So in other words, like most IMF loans, it does very little for the country, but then those countries still owe a huge amount of money to the IMF and have to dedicate increasingly large sums of the budget to pay back the IMF, which then means less money for actual people in the country. And Argentina already had huge debts with the private sector as well, and many of them actually date back to the early 2000s and even late 90s and became caught up in a massive controversy after Argentina defaulted on its debt in 2001 and took many of its creditors to court which meant the country was almost totally locked out of international financial markets. So Argentina has seen the dark side of the IMF-led economic programs pushed on the global south by the U.S. and EU. However, it rarely works out that way. And in fact, in a report on the loan, the IMF itself stated that, quote, the strategy and conditions of the program were not enough to correct Argentina's structural problems. So in other words, like most IMF loans, it does very little for the country itself, but then those countries still owe huge amounts of money to the IMF and have to dedicate increasingly large sums of their budget to pay back the IMF, which of course leaves less money for the actual citizens of those nations. 
So Argentina has seen the dark side of the IMF-led economic programs pushed on the global south by the U.S. and EU. However, for most of the 20th and early 21st century, there were very limited options for developing nations who needed cash to make some attempt to grow their economy. However, of late, China in particular has become a source of large funds and development projects in Russia, while less wealthy than China does have some money, and more than that, significant capabilities in a range of different industries that it can work with other nations on as well. And increasingly, Russia and China are working to create a more organized counter to the Western-led, quote-unquote, rules-based international order where the West makes all the rules. And some countries are leaning into the Russia-China axis, if you will, as a point of leverage with their Western financial interlocutors or as a way to break free from the so-called rules-based international order, so to speak. In Moscow, where Fernandez traveled first, he was pretty blunt, telling President Putin that, quote, I'm certain Argentina has to stop being so dependent on the fund and the United States and has to open up to other places. And that is where it seems to me that Russia has a very important place, end quote. He went on to further state that Argentina, quote, should be the door to enter the region. We could be a venue for the development of your cooperation with Latin American nations. Now, remember, this is happening at the height of tensions between the U.S. and Russia, so it's something of a middle finger to the U.S. Openly inviting a country the U.S. hates into a region it declares to be both its front and backyard. And to boot, Argentina is not just some random country. It's the third largest economy in Latin America. According to the Argentine business press, Fernandez's comments caused, quote, strong discomfort from U.S. officials. And notably, during the president's tour, the head of the IMF came out with a statement saying there should be more social spending in Argentina, clearly trying to push back on the critiques by Fernandez and hinting at the possibility of easier terms on IMF loans. Fernandez had been asking the U.S. to put pressure on the IMF in just this direction, and it seems like his Russia-China trip is putting pressure on both the U.S. and the IMF. In China, as mentioned earlier, Fernandez got $23.7 billion in deals. Journalist Ben Norton details the agreement as follows, saying, quote, the funding will be dispersed in two parts. One, which is already approved, will provide Argentina with $14 billion for 10 infrastructure projects. The second, for $9.7 billion, will finance the South American nation's integration into the Belt and Road Initiative. There are three joint Chinese-Argentine projects that were reportedly at the top of Fernandez's list, creating 5G networks developing Argentina's lithium industry, and building the Atucha 3 nuclear power plant. Argentina was the first country in the Western Hemisphere to use Russia's Sputnik V vaccine, and in China, Fernandez also discussed plans to produce Sinopharm in Argentina. Ultimately, Argentina is still in a very tricky spot and still owes huge sums to creditors, including the IMF. But clearly, the government is hoping to use the contradictions of the global economy to escape debt trap politics that leaves countries unable to advance any sort of pro-people agenda. We've been reporting to you quite a bit on the semi-secret slush fund the Federal Reserve has established for the massive repo loan market on Wall Street. How they pumped in $9 trillion into that loan market between September of 2019 until just before the pandemic. How they've given out trillions of dollars since then and formalized a lending facility to provide $500 billion a day to the repo market at the end of 2021. So in other words, we've been reporting to you on how there is more or less a semi-secret ongoing bailout of one of Wall Street's most crucial cogs in terms of how the global economy operates. 
Thanks to the reporting of Wall Street on Parade, we can further relay to you that the information being slowly released by the Fed is proving that something is seriously rotten at the core of the repo market and that average people like ourselves are the most at risk if it fails. So to start more or less from the beginning here, it's a little long story, but stick with me. Repos are short-term, usually overnight loans that grease the wheels of the economy. It's a way for entities with a lot of cash to lend it out to entities with more assets than cash to finance their activity. So an example is Fidelity has a bunch of money sitting around from the money they manage. A hedge fund has a bunch of assets but needs some cash in order to conduct a bunch of trades. So they loan Fidelity the asset overnight based on a contract to buy it back the next day. The repo market's huge, $4 trillion a day in transactions on average. And like I said, it greases the wheels of the global economy and connects everyone from big money market funds like Fidelity to huge banks like JP Morgan and to hedge funds and other Wall Street players. So more or less, the whole system is all wrapped up in there, meaning if anything goes wrong, well, it can bring everything down. The other thing to note is a huge amount of what happens on Wall Street happens more or less in the dark, and no major player knows exactly how all the other major players are deeply interconnected with all the various parts. And this plays a big role in the repo market. If people on the lending side of the market start to think, "Mm, something's not quite right here, they may start to back up from lending to the market, either refusing to lend more often or making the terms tighter to protect themselves, which can in and of itself shut people out of the market who can't meet the terms. So if the repo market gets spooked, It can seize up fast, and the gears of the economy can stop moving. So, on to some of the new information. So, one common trade that happens in Wall Street is something called a basis trade. It's complicated, but the basic gist of it is this. Hedge funds are constructing a process where they can profit off the difference between what a treasury bill costs to buy right now and what it will cost in the future and end up with the net profit on the whole thing. And the way they pay for the purchase of the treasury bills in the here and now is usually borrowing the money the repo market. So just to use our example, a hedge fund borrows money from Fidelity to buy a treasury bill at X price. Now they're hoping to be able to short it, that is hoping the value drops so they can sell it at Y price and hopefully end with Z money that pays for it all and leaves extra money over and above what they'd get in other ways of dealing with treasuries. However, hedge funds are often heavily leveraged, meaning they owe a bunch of people money and are dependent on the right things hitting at the right time to pay everyone off. So lenders on the repo market are going to be hyper-attuned to things that make those who are borrowing the money look particularly risky. So in 2019, there was a huge jump in hedge funds shorting treasuries as a part of these basis trades, which ultimately looked risky. When everyone's rushing all at once into something, it implies everyone's looking for a big payoff, and big payoffs on Wall Street only come with big risks. What you note then is that in late summer of 2019, lenders started demanding higher maintenance margins. That's the money you got to keep in reserve in case something goes wrong. Now, what you also note is that the lenders started relaxing their requirements in this regard, meaning they were less worried about things going bad, right around the time in late 2019 that the Fed was pumping trillions into the repo market on a regular basis. So when you put it all together... It seems like the Fed was acting more or less to pump trillions of dollars into the repo market right when the repo market started to get a bit spooked by the possibility that these basis trades were not looking great. Now, if you listen to this show regularly, you'll also know that last week we noted the Fed's semi-secret bailout also coincided with the hedge fund going bust and the fear that there were other hedge funds out there that could go bust. So at the end of the day, the Fed acted to pump trillions of dollars on an emergency basis into the repo market because it was starting to seize up seemingly because from all sorts of bad bets and all sorts of different parts of the market, everyone was getting freaked out that the whole thing was going to collapse like a house of cards. 
So clearly, something is rotten right at the core of the financial center of the economy. And without the role of the Fed, likely in late 2019, this would have caused some very serious troubles. The real point here is, if one of the most central loan markets to the economy is in such trouble that the Federal Reserve has loaned out trillions of dollars, is willing to loan out $500 billion a day, and is trying to keep the details as secret as possible, then what does that say about the economy overall? Seems like it says there are a lot of ticking time bombs that could go off at any moment. And you know what that means. Too big to fail kicks in. And the arsonists who started the fire get paid off nicely while you and I deal with all of the economic devastation that comes along with an economic crash. Four days ago, a court in Swaziland released student leader Kalani Masiko, president of the Swaziland National Union of Snoot, president of the Swaziland National Union of Students, SNUS, on bail after he was arrested in late January on charges of sedition connected to the huge mass movement that has been sweeping the country for over a year, trying to end the absolute monarchy of King Maswati III. As News Service People's Dispatch notes, quote, his bail came a day after the SNUS marched to the Manzini Regional Police Headquarters and held a demonstration on February 3rd. A cross-section of Swaziland's pro-democracy forces, including the banned political parties, trade unions, and youth organizations attended the action. And at that action, protesters declared their intention to make the country, quote-unquote, ungovernable. Over the past year, over 70 people have been killed, hundreds have been injured, and a number have been tortured in brutal police repression against protest against the monarchy that became so large and so significant the king actually fled the country in June 2021 and didn't return for over a month after, of course, his cops conducted this reign of terror. Since October, students have become the vanguard of the protest and have led a range of militant actions. Students have been up in arms over issues related to the cost of education, but it's become part of a broader set of overall demands of tens of thousands of Swazis upset with the deep poverty, low-wage jobs, and lack of political democracy in the country, all of which are linked to the king, who not only monopolizes political power, but who owns almost the entire economy and is infamous around the world for his private jets, Rolls Royces, and the European shopping sprees of his wives. The broad democracy movement is continuing to mobilize and has called upon the population to again intensify the struggle. Leadership of the movement has come in particular from radical forces like the Communist Party of Swaziland, and the Communist Party and other radical groups are pushing the tempo of the struggle aggressively. Unfortunately, Maswati is getting support from most of the Southern African nations who have long embraced the king and who are backing his efforts to co-opt the movement through a so-called national dialogue that's totally managed by the monarch and his court. In South Africa, however, COSATU, the largest trade union federation, and the Communist Party of South Africa, both part of the ruling tripartite alliance, are backing the Swazi democracy struggle and pressing for more action from the government. The largest trade union, NUMSA, is also fighting for the Swazis in South Africa, as is the third largest political party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, whom are also active in Swaziland. So while the struggle seems set to continue in the coming months, it's far from clear that the king can maintain his position as Africa's last absolute monarch for the rest of this year. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York, East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles, Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. 
It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah, yeah, yeah.